Hello and welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. I'm Evan Ball. On this episode, we welcome the one and the only Steve Vai. Steve Vai is, of course, way up there on the pantheon of guitar gods, playing with Frank Zappa, David Lee Roth, Whitesnake, all that before releasing the landmark instrumental rock guitar album, Passion and Warfare. In this episode, we cover many topics, including how Steve learned to play guitar from Joe Satriani, why Steve is so good at what he does, the evolution of guitar playing, how his showmanship developed, especially while performing with David Lee Roth, discipline versus passion, and the story behind his monumental song, For the Love of God. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Vai. Steve Vai, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Good to see you, Evan. Yeah. Well, lots to talk about, lots to cover, past, present, and future. So Mm -hmm. maybe we can start back a few years. High school, were you social? Did you play sports or was your passion for music all consuming? Uh, What was your high school experience like? Well, I had older brothers and sisters. And they had kind of carved uh, a hole in the high school, you know. Uh. <laughs> my my older brother, Roger, was uh, pretty notorious. Uh, loved, you know, he was loved, but he was really tough and really kind of mischievous. So by the time my two brothers and my sister had gotten through high school uh, and I got in there, I, you know, the, the, the high school environment for me, amongst the teachers was they were very cautious but i uh, i enjoyed you know i didn't like getting up in the morning and, and necessarily going to school but i i liked being at school because um i liked my i had a lot of friends i was pretty much i mean in high school i might say it'd, it'd be best to talk to uh you know people i went to high school with but uh i was a nice guy and i had friends in all of the different kind of social groups you know the the, the brainiacs, the smart kids, the the jocks, the, the I always felt sorry for those kids that were just misfits, you know. Yeah. And and I hung out with them, but I was I was primarily a greaser. Really? Yeah, okay. greaser. I had long hair. I had a tattoo. I got a tattoo when I was like sixteen. I would uh, I would have ridden a motorcycle, but I couldn't afford one. But all my friends that I hung out with did. My brother, you know, the group that I. I mainly socialized with was, uh, and this is high school was because I was in a rock band and the rock band was from the other side of the tracks. Well, I mean, they were from our school, but they were mm-hmm. more of the greaser type. And when I say greaser, I just mean like, you know, with partiers, you know, with, with, with smoking weed and drinking and going out and going to bars and clubs when we were like 16, Okay, you know, playing all the clubs in long Island and, uh, it was just really great. It was great fun. But um, I was uh, accepted in all of the various groups. I don't think I was like disliked or anything. I yeah. was probably a bit of a misfit. So it sounds like you had time for both uh, recreation and lots of guitar practice. Yeah. In, in younger high school, like seventh and eighth grade, junior, I guess, I was into sports. I had joined um, uh, the wrestling team, believe it or not. And then in ninth and 10th grade, or maybe it was 10th and 11th, I can't remember, but at one point I, I joined the football team. Wow. I was a defensive guard because I weighed close to 200 pounds. Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, wait, how tall are you? I know you're tall. Uh, six one. I, oh, back so, then okay. I was like, back then I was like six one. I'm a little shorter now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just happens. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I uh, drove an ice cream truck and uh, ate a lot of meatball heroes, you know, and I gained a lot of weight. <laughs> All right. But, but primarily I, I, uh, I only did that a little while. I played guitar, you know, I, I went home and I played guitar and I wrote music. Yeah. Hey, at what point in your guitar journey do you take lessons from Joe Satriani? So when I was uh, 12, I had joined a band, but I didn't play guitar. I played keyboard, <laughs> electric keyboard. Mm. And I only knew two chords uh, and they were for Jumpin' Jack Flash, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I had always wanted to play. So um, I finally, when I heard Led Zeppelin, I decided I wanted to play. And also a friend of mine that lived a couple of houses down, John Sergio, uh, he was uh, real into music. He was um, one of those secret kind of people in my life that exposed me to tremendous amounts of music in various realms and took me to concerts. And he was the bass player in the first band I was in where I played guitar. And he was my childhood friend since I was, a uh, you know, before kindergarten, yeah. you know. And uh, so he was instrumental in my musical evolution as a youngster. But he was taking lessons from Joe. And when I was at John's house once and he had a guitar and he was playing it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you have a guitar and you're able to play it. And he goes, yeah, I'm taking lessons from this guy, Joe Satriani. And I, I got Joe's number from him. And that's when I decided, well, if he can do it, I, you know, I, it, it's okay. You can, you can play the guitar, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then I uh, went to Joe and I basically had a pack of strings and a guitar. And Wow. So it's like the very initial phase of your guitar playing. Yeah, I didn't know anything. I mean, I was noodling around with the guitar in my bedroom before that, you know? But I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was just playing by ear, and I didn't know how to keep the strings tuned. So is it? So is he teaching you like Led Zeppelin covers at this point? Or in the beginning, it was basically like finger exercises and just things to kind of get my uh, dexterity going. But he was, it was very well balanced. You know, my my lessons evolved very organically. You know, he was an incredible teacher. He was able to, you know, see what it was that I was interested in and what I needed to know in order to help me to figure out things for myself. But he was a wealth of riffs. I mean, Joe, I would bring him songs and I'd say, can you show me how to play this song? And it'd be like Led Zeppelin. Or I remember when the Bad Company record came out, I was asking him and he had just like heard the songs a few times and he could play them. He was actually playing the riffs that the guitarist on the record was playing. And I was, I was fascinated with that. I was like, you really can do this. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he saw your promise early on? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. <laughs> right. I was always, I always felt like, uh, um, I was struggling, not struggling to keep, no, I wasn't struggling to keep up. I always felt like the, the room had no roof, you know, it had no ceiling. You know, when I was in Joe's room learning, I never felt as though I was going to run out of mentorship. You know, I, there yeah. was always this greatness about Joe that always seemed to surprise and delight. You know, he was always teaching one new lesson after another, just revealed a wealth of information and almost what seemed to me at the time and, you know, an infinite depth of musicality. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I always wondered, was this just a fun fact that spread, you know, like 
Satriani gave you a, a five minute lesson once and it got embellished from there, but no, Joe, this is real. Joe, Joe Satriani taught me how to play guitar. Yeah, the that's end, so cool. You know? that's awesome. I mean, I was, I took lessons from him for, uh, maybe three or four years. Okay. You know, from, from the most formidable time for me when I was 12, you know, all through high school. And then Joe, he was like four years older than me. So he, he was out of high school, you know, before I was, and, um, he had moved, he actually moved to Japan. That was weird. Hmm. You know, he moved there. And, and so I didn't, I wasn't able to take lessons for like, I think he lived there for like six or eight months. Okay. But this was like early seventies, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, well now it's mid, mid to, well, mid, mid 70, you know, like 76, 75. Okay. And then, uh, he came back for a little while and I was able to get some more lessons, but then he moved to San Francisco and I started taking lessons from all sorts of different people. I was taking lessons from one of uh, the guitarists that Joe played with, Tom Sharkey. I was taking lessons from a guy named Joe Bell. He was teaching me jazz. So there was a lot of other teachers, but yeah, I mean, you know, none of them. The, the other guys were like, okay, I'll take lessons for three or four months and this is great. Let me find somebody else. Teach me a little classical, you know, mm -hmm. but Joe, no, Joe was like solid religiously every week for several years. Yeah. I love thinking about the eras. I'm always interested in how music evolves. Like for example, how guitar gets from, let's say Jimmy Page and other guitar giants in the seventies to flashier, faster, more technically demanding solos in the eighties. And I guess I am intrigued in general with how humans are able to continually push boundaries, right? Whether well, it's, it's very easy. Yeah, well, I think it's a natural process, but I think it's certain individuals have to sort of pave the way, right? Well, that's the natural evolution of things. Uh, the human mind is capable of, uh, I mean, I, I'll go out on a limb here. I yeah. mean, it, it's not a limb for me. <laughs> it's capable of anything. Anything that you believe entirely is your reality. So when a kid comes into the world and it's hypothetically, if he's interested in music, and guitar, such as myself or Joe or any of our peers when they were 12, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that listening to Jimmy Page and Hendrix and all the greats of the 70s, they're coming into the world and saying, okay, that's that's the status quo. That's That's ground zero. Right. And subconsciously, you know, if I was able to speak my subconscious mind back then, I would say, okay, well, this is where it's at now. This is ground zero. Uh, this is what I, I want to do. So I would, I, I had a, a beautiful giant buffet that was already set out for me. And I take it from there. That's what we all do. We take it from where we see it. If you were to futz around with time <laughs> yeah. and project, uh, you know, a hundred years into the future, in the very unlikely event, the guitar would, we'd be able to actually conceive of how it would have evolved. And you had a player in a hundred years from now that was, you know, four or five generations or whatever evolved, Yeah. you know, and you placed him here right now, everything would pick up from there. Right. Yeah, because you know I mean? it's for most people, it's you have to know what's possible, what what you can aspire to. Exactly, it, and it's those people that see what's that see what's happening, and then say to themselves, "That's possible." I wonder if this is possible. Yeah, well, I'm curious. 
would it be possible, like from a music history perspective, to to trace a path from, say, mainstream rock guitar playing in the 70s to the 80s? Like, are there certain players that stand out as notably moving the needle? Everybody's contributing, whether it looks that way or not, because you're hearing all sorts of through those years, those 10 years, you're hearing all sorts of players like in the 80s. For me, there was a, a huge amount of rock players because the guitar was really exploding as a uh, as more of a pop rock instrument in the 70s it was more of a uh, a tool of uh, you know improvisation and 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 expression and rock and roll and all that but then in the 80s it became very focused short flashy solo kinds of things at least as far as pop awareness goes so there was a lot of players contributing. And when you hear when you would hear all these other players, they would always be shaping your perspective. So it's not just it's not necessarily a handful of players, although there may have been a handful of players that were spearheading a movement. So when somebody like Edward comes along, that's a pretty big monolith that yeah. landed, you know, so yeah. that that uh cast a complete awareness over the guitar in general. I mean, that was, when he hit the scene, that was one of the more epic transmutations of the guitar because immediately you see him and it was eons beyond anything anybody was really doing in the way of tone and song construction and being handed to you on a silver platter. So then people were inspired by that and there was a, a, a paradigm shift in the guitar community. Yeah, cause, well, say you're taking lessons in 1975. I mean, is is finger tapping or sweet picking even on the menu <laughs> of, of things to to learn? Right. Well, it's the it's people come along with different inner visions and then they manifest them. So there were people tapping, and according to who you talk to, you'll hear different stories about how tapping emerged. You'll talk to people, oh no, that started way, you know decades yeah. ago and so on so i can only tell you my recollection and my story um the first time i personally heard tapping was on a frank zappa song it was inca Rhodes, and he used his pick you know he kind of like would tap on the neck with his pick and that was one of my favorite solos it was a big long beautiful involved uh solo recorded live in helsinki and uh when i heard the tapping i said oh that's cool you know and i started doing it but it was it was unrefined and it was um were you doing it with a pick at that point uh, your finger no i was starting to use my fingers okay and it but it was more novelty based you know and then all of a sudden there's edward and you're like what is that <laughs> so he completely like it's like you're a farmer and you're uh you, you've got a little rain here and there and you're going out and you're finding the shrubs and you're like oh okay here's one good one you know, and then all of a sudden somebody says, well, look, come to my supermarket. I've got everything in great abundance, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was Edward. Wow. <laughs> all right. So by 18 years old, you're already transcribing complex Frank Zappa compositions, right? Yeah. So while you're a greaser and you're doing all this stuff, so sight reading must be a big part of your practice during your teen years, right? Yeah. To be I, at that level. Yeah, I um, was always fascinated with notes. I started compose. I wanted to be a composer before I knew even knew what a guitar was. You know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, always fascinated with the little black dots. And 
started to learn how to write them and read them at a very early age. And then um, in high school, I started a music theory class in seventh grade. It was a high school class, so it was, it was pretty challenging, but it taught me everything. The teacher, Bill Westcott, Joe had the same teacher. He was, uh, he was like this genius, this savant. And my high school theory class was everything that to this day, every, I base everything off it, you know, wow. uh, compositionally, you know, compositionally. But um, it wasn't until I was taking lessons with Joe that he was sort of teaching me how to take all this knowledge, this music knowledge that I had and apply it to the guitar. Because for me, the guitar was like, okay, I can play this, you know, since I've been loving you, that's what the guitar is for, you know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it wasn't until Joe that I started mixing that, uh, using the theory. Okay, so the note reading, that's like a natural passion. It's not like you had to be disciplined to learn it. You know, like I think the drive for most players is I want to work on playing faster. I want to work on whammy bar technique. Uh, you know, Evan, none of that stuff works. You have to be interested in order for you to have any retention. Right. And and if you're interested, there's no discipline necessary. Matter of fact, uh, your passion is what takes the place of discipline. And it's a more effective tool. You know, Definitely. discipline doesn't doesn't really work. You know, I'm totally undisciplined. I'm, I'm just like, I've never been disciplined. I mean, it looks from a from another perspective, it looks like, man, that guy, that kid's discipline. But I wanted to be able to read music because I love the idea of looking at notes and playing them and having music come out. When I was in, uh, when I moved, when I finally moved to Boston and was going to Berkeley, there was a period of time for about a year. By the time I had gotten to Berkeley, I was a, I was an okay reader. You know, I, I, I loved the idea. I was fascinated with the idea of being an incredible sight reader. Like I decided when I was at Berkeley that I wanted to be the greatest guitar sight reader in the world. That's it. I just wanted to, I wanted to be able to look at any piece of music and just play it. And I worked my ass off <laughs> with great passion for like a year. And um, I was okay at the end of it. I was not great because the guitar is a hard instrument. It's, it's really a difficult instrument to sight read on. I'm pretty good. Oh, I was, I was, I, I don't do it. You know, I, I stopped yeah. doing it many. I don't, there's no need for me to sight read anything. Uh, but I, I can pretty much read anything that's playable, but I can't sight read it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think accounts for your clearly excelling on guitar? I mean, do you have an obsessive personality or a competitive or is it it's clearly passion, like we said. There's no, there's no replacement for passion. But is there anything that feeds into that? Well, it's hard to say because when you're doing it, you, it's hard to judge. You know, like I could say I'm an overachiever, but what does that mean? You know, I could say. Uh, but relative to other people, you can kind of notice your personality. Uh, traits, no, re relative to other people, um, my perspective at the time, when I look back, now whether this was really happening not, or this was just in my mind at the time. Um, there was always a little bit of inferiority hmm. in me. I, I wasn't a very smart student. I was, if anything, below average. And uh, so I always felt everybody else had it going on more than I do. This is not an uncommon thought that insecure people have. You know, <laughs> Everybody's got it going on better than me and I have to work harder or, you know, this is a, it's just, a, it, it, it's not true, first of all. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's just a, it's a weakened perspective brought on by the ego, you know? So, um, I know Joe Bonamassa was on this podcast and he said, you know what? I'll be honest. Spite is a big motivator for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It drove me. Well, I was driven by, by interest, but also the realization that here's something that I, that that I, uh, can understand easily, you Mm -hmm. know, because when I looked at music, when I would listen to what theory was, when I, it just was so easy and clear to me. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, of course, these are the notes. Oh, yeah, oh, that's the scale. Okay, then these are all these. Oh, I get it, of course. You know, if you want to write something and you want to have everything, you go like this. It's very, very easy. Nothing else was easy for me. You know, it's like, except mm. math. I was good at math. Okay. Uh, but but not very good at anything else. So I just thought, well, uh, this is my strength. This is what I want to do. It, it was just very innocent. It was like, this is yeah. what I like. This is what I want to do. And here's here's the thing. Okay. When I would sit down and get an idea and try to play it and not be able to play it and then work on it and work on it and work on it and then all of a sudden be able to play it, this, this caused uh, a feeling of fulfillment and dignity and achievement. Yeah. And that was it. That, if, that's the answer to your question. It's the feeling of achievement which makes you feel, you know, good about yourself, right. which, which becomes addictive. Yes. And that's what happened to me. It became addictive. So there was yeah. the, there was the realization that here's something that I can understand and not do, but understand better than all my friends. None of my, all my friends that were good at everything and smart and cool and hip and could make fun of all the other people that didn't have their shit together. You know, they couldn't, touch me in the way in regard to my ability to absorb musical understanding. I don't know why, you know, it was just a brain muscle. Yeah. Like you said, you, you intellectually just comprehended this stuff very well. I guess there's the physical component too of finger movements, which you must have some natural coordination. Can I be honest with you? I'll I'll be, I'll be honest like Joe Bonamassa. (laughs) (laughs) I had to work really hard. I'm not a natural at playing. Huh. Most people, I've had students through the years that were remarkable, that I would watch them and all of a sudden they're just natural. You're like Dweezil. I, I, when, when I first started teaching Dweezil, he couldn't play, he couldn't even put one finger on the guitar without hitting three strings, you know? <laughs> and I didn't teach him. I gave him a f- couple of lessons, but he just, when I tell you like within three weeks, he was playing Ingbe. Wow. I'm not kidding. You know, wow, it's yeah. one, one of those things and you know, one of those people. I wasn't like that. I, I just really, I didn't even start. I don't even believe I started sounding good until Alcatraz. That surprises me because you're playing, you know, I'm even thinking I saw you play live on the Ernie Ball 50th anniversary party and I just felt like your touch came through and your expression. Well, that, that's been developed. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just, I would equate that not with someone who's like book smart and learning this stuff it's 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 more natural and i don't know i feel like it's it, that's that's harder to develop well i think it, you you can't develop something that's not dormant in you mm-hmm. you know uh, other like i would never be able to develop okay so there's like jazz players you know that can play over all these changes you know you could throw any change and they're focused when they're jamming or playing is 
changes and all these flavorful notes and this kind of thing that doesn't lie very dormant in me you know yeah <laughs> I, I could i could do it but it's never gonna speak naturally and and organically the thing that speaks naturally and, and organically in me is phrasing uh-huh. you know so that's that's what i gravitated to and there's this uh, almost like this uh, rye cooter said it he kind of when he said this I kind of understood what he meant. It, it, it put together a couple of uh, puzzle pieces for me. And I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back here, but he said that, uh, and I used to read Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, very, there's something very rich and romantic about it, but you got to get it. You know, you got to resonate with it. And he said, you're like Shakespeare. <laughs> he mm. said, you play the guitar like Shakespeare writes. Yeah. You know, and I thought, Okay, I, I kind of get it. There's this weird, there's like a quirkiness, there's a romantic kind of uh, thing yeah. to it sometimes, you know? Oh, that's cool. Real quick on Zappa, uh, I've kind of wondered this. If someone hasn't been exposed much to Frank Zappa, uh, his catalog seems daunting. Do you have any guidance on where to start, how to dig in? That's really tough, but uh, you can't go wrong if you pick up... Uh, and this is just my opinion. Because Frank's music this is so vast. Each little room that he would live in yeah. uh, was beautiful. You know, so you you could pick a room to live in for a little while. He had the synclavier work. There's there's R and B. There's rock. There's you know all the stuff. But the, his compositional rock band stuff was my my favorite. So records like One Size Fits All. You know, Overnight Sensation. They're just incredible records. And also um, Live at the Roxy. Great. You know, things like that. They're really great. I mean, okay, yeah, that's what I might recommend to dip your toe. <laughs> what, one more funny thing. I, so I, I know, you, you know, you worked with him for a couple of years before joining his band. I think he wanted you to join his band. Mm-hmm. But I heard you mention that he wasn't that nice to you on your edition. <laughs> How does that add <laughs> it was up? Tough. It was tough. I had to go through a lot of little mini auditions. You know, because his, I think Frank's concern with me was taking a taking a twenty year old kid on tour, and and is he, is he going to be able to perform? You know, is he going to be able to learn all this music and actually play it properly? Uh, so I was uh, kind of put through a lot of different little auditions. I remember there's this one really difficult passage in a song called "Wild Love," and it's a composed piece with all these polyrhythms. Uh, it's just an interlude. And I had to play that to him over the phone once. That was one of the first things. But uh, when I came down for an audition, for the actual audition, Frank was putting a band together for an American tour in 1980. And uh, he said, come on down, learn all these songs. And he gave me a list of songs. Didn't call any of those songs more <laughs> <laughs> when I got there. But he, uh, you know, he, he, he put me through the paces throughout the audition he had to see if i knew how to deal with my sound if i could take direction and he would just you know because frank built music by any means necessary he would come in with written stuff and he'd say play this or he'd pick up the guitar and he'd cryptically kind of play through something and he'd say okay play that play it at this speed do it like this he'd sing something to you you know there was any means necessary to get his point across and you just had to be ready. So there wasn't really a formal audition. It was more a gradual process. He wanted to try me out when I was 18. But then when I told him I was 18, he just said, you're too young. <laughs> I yeah, can't yeah. have an 18-year-old in my band. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
the day after my 20th birthday, I moved out to California right down the street from him, basically. And uh, just started going up to the house. And, you know, once you start going up to the, the house, you just start recording. And Frank's universe was musical at all times. So you were constantly being pulled into his creative sphere of making music. Yeah. So I think that he was observing me, but there was some real intense, really intense stuff that he had given me to learn before I was even invited to come down to audition for the band. It was a piece of music at the time. It was called C Instruments, but it turned into the theme to the, I think it was the first movement of Sinister Footwear. It's impossible. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like I could, if I held the first page, the second page, the last page would be about six feet away. And it was sheer terror. It was nothing to do with what's playable on the guitar. You know what I mean? It, it right. didn't fall right. But it was beautiful, you know, it was beautiful. And it, the poly, the polyrhythms in it were staggering, you know, they were just very, very dense. And yeah. I learned it and I recorded it at the house. And then he had given me this guitar solo to transcribe uh, one of his, you know, and his Frank solos were like, you know, anywhere between five and 10 minutes long. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I transcribed it and I told him, you know, I could double that. And he said, go ahead, you know, and I learned it. And he really got a kick out of all these kind of impossible things I was doing. Uh, yeah. Doing those kinds of things are all fine and good, but it's a lot different than being in, in his band where you have to deliver. It's not all complex, hard music. I mean, there's a lot of other nuances. You have to be able to take direction. You watch him and there was so much. I mean, I was 20 and I was on a, a giant stage with Frank Zappa. That's you know? crazy. Well, hey, in addition to your virtuosity on guitar, I think it's safe to say you've gained a reputation for showmanship. I was actually just looking back on some some video of you and David Lee Roth, and uh, yeah. it would be quite hard to rival the performance you guys put on. Was, <laughs> was this a natural thing for you, or did it get ramped up during this period, or, or how did this side of you develop? Well, it, again, it was dormant. I love theater. I lo I, one of the first pieces of music that I ever heard that lit me up was when I was like four or five years old. And it was uh, the West side story because, you know, when you're young, you, you hear what your parents bring home and they had that. And there was the West side story movie and they would had gangs in it. And you know, it had like, it had all this drama and this incredibly historic music that sounded beautiful. So there was a part of me that wanted to perform, like be a performer. And I lay, I used to lay in bed when I was like, 9, 10, 11, 12. And I'd listen to the two things that I did quite a lot before I actually, well, even after I started playing, was um, I'd lay in bed and I'd imagine myself on a stage being this performer. And uh, you're performing, and I visualize this, but um, I would manifest it in front of a mirror with a, uh, like a, you know, a tennis racket or a broom, you know, where I'd I'd have a fake guitar and I would just be jumping around, like listening to like Led Zeppelin. I was a rock star, man. I was in my bedroom with a broom jumping yeah. from bed to bed. We had two beds and my brother had a stereo and I blasted hour after hour jumping around like I was a rock star on stage. That's what I did. I locked the door. Nobody knew. Nobody came in except once my grandfather barged in and I was embarrassed. But uh, Do you think that's something David Lee Roth took into consideration? 
or was that just an added bonus once he, he got you on? Well, what happened was uh, I tried to uh, act this rock star persona when I started playing out with my friends in high school, but it was hard because you got to play, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, you, I can't let the performance get in the way of the playing or else I'm just going to be an idiot, you know? But then uh, that other side of me that was really into composition and nuance kicked in with Frank because with Frank, there was no performing. There was playing the parts, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I wasn't concerned about performing at all. I mean, a, you know, a couple of little things here and there. But then with Dave Roth, when I first joined the band, that was the period where I learned how to perform organically as opposed to trying to be a rock star, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I liked the big stage. I liked being animated because when you're on a big stage like that, you have to project uh, um, or at least I felt I did and working with Dave was fantastic because he was one of the greatest projectors, you know, I mean, David Lee Roth, yeah, he's over the top, uh, over the top, you know, back in the eighties. And he taught me so much. I mean, he, I was very gawky, you know, in the beginning and, and not very, uh, charismatic or my movements were not very elegant at all. And I was very thin and, you know, and, uh, he, he, I think he knew that I could play, but he spent time working with me as a performer. He demonstrated, you know, there was periods of time we'd go down to the rehearsal place and, you know, he would say, okay, so this song goes like this and there's these people out here and I'm going to be doing this. And all of a sudden he'd bust into like David Lee Roth, you know, I'd be like, whoa. And he'd say, how, how are you going to project you know how are you how are you going to move and he go and, and i'd start kind of you know i'd do my thing and he uh -huh. and and he would just immediately point out, out the flaws you know <laughs> and uh this was fantastic uh, education but then after a while uh, and then he would like you know take me to the gym and kick my ass my skinny white ass you know <laughs> and, and he'd, he'd make sure i mean he, uh, he got me into working out yeah it was important to him. No, it looks exhausting what you guys are doing on the stage. Yeah, but it was so much fun. Yeah. And then and then I got it, I got it, you know. I just kind of got into what it's like to emanate and that dormant rock star kid in, that was playing in the mirror came to life, you know. But then after Dave Roth and after White Snake, when I became Steve Vai, Steve Vai, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like my more my more natural uh, so well when i became yeah, yeah. a solo artist passion and warfare and yeah beyond, yeah i actually didn't tour on passion and warfare because i couldn't i couldn't see myself fronting a band because i was so used to having these uh enigmatic lead singers you know and i wasn't quite sure how i would negotiate the whole thing you know but then when i so then when i did the next record sex and religion and i got a singer and i tried all that i got devin uh -huh. And I was very comfortable kind of being on the side. I, I wasn't interested in being out front, you know? <laughs> so you didn't tour Passion of Warfare? No, I did not. Okay. That's probably one of the greatest uh, disadvantages to my contemporary touring audience is that I didn't tour that record because probably my audience would, I don't know. Because it was too hard to pull off live? Well, there was various factors involved. Okay. There was the fact that I had just... I had just toured 
and recorded intensely with David Lee Roth for like two or three years. And it was like intense. And then I went right from Dave Roth into Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't go through the writing process with Whitesnake. I just jumped in, recorded the guitars, and then we were out on the road for 13 months. And, and Passion and Warfare had come out while I was on tour with Whitesnake. Yeah. So when I, when I finished Whitesnake, I had the opportunity to go right back out on tour. But I had just been out for 13 months. And before that, I was out for two years, you know. Yeah. And I just had a baby. Ugh. And I just, there was no way, you know. So I, I just let the whole thing pass. And I stayed home. I actually worked on some of the projects. But uh, then once Sex and Religion came out, I started to tour. And after the Sex and Religion, I, I realized that I think I could be comfortable as a, a, a front man. I, okay. I love Devin. Devin was incredible, you know, mm-hmm. but I can't depend on anybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I saw Frank do that and it was a lot of work. Yeah. You know, uh, I just want to, I, I just decided then I need to be the center of attention. I need to be the, 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 the gravity pull yeah. on the stage. And then I, and I knew I can do it, yeah. uh, but it needed to be the merging of all of the things from the past, you know? Right. Uh, meaning I wanted my playing, what I was playing to be mature, to be uh, effective, to be uh, interesting, engaging. I wanted my performance to, uh, primarily, I see myself as a performer that's there to entertain people and give them something to feel engaged and interested in. I want them to see great, a great player that the music flows through this player organically and beautifully, you know, and mellifluously, almost seemingly infinitely. Uh, it's hard to yeah. kind of explain. So, but these are the kinds of things you have to imagine. You it's can't, a high bar. It's you, you have to set a high bar What the fuck, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's this, there's this men, there's this, uh, this, uh, idea that you're not allowed to think this way about yourself because it's pretentious. This is insane. You know, you have to be able to see yourself doing something before you're going to be able to do it. And there's no limitation. There is no, li- the limitation is in your own mind. Yeah. Good advice. Well, I want to go back to passion and warfare for a sec. I remember reading back then. I was in eighth grade when that came out. I'd been playing guitar for a couple of years and it was <laughs> just the coolest thing ever. And Thanks. obviously I wasn't alone because the impact is amazing for an instrumental album. But I remember reading that you fasted three days prior to recording for the love of God. And I think didn't even pick up your guitar for a month beforehand. But can you give us a story behind writing and recording that song? It was a kind of thing where um, whenever I have a little idea, I capture it somehow, whether it's on tape. In the old days, it was cassette and then dat, and now it's my iPhone. Uh, and that riff, uh, I started playing the chords and I sang the melody of just the verse and kind of recorded it on a cassette, put it on the shelf for many years and broke it out when I was doing Passion and Warfare and realized there's there's a whole beautiful song in here. And the melody, I really liked the melody. The melody was enchanting to me. My wife mentioned, well, this went way back. And she said, you know, that sounds a bit like a uh, Kung Fu melody. <laughs> I was like, really? So I went and I ran, I listened to the Kung Fu melody and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, there's a, 
there's like two or three notes that it's very similar. So it must have been in the back of my mind because I watched Kung Fu, Fu when I was a kid. Yeah. But anyway, so I knew there was a full song in there. So I fleshed it out and I basically uh, recorded the track. I put the track together and I knew uh, the trajectory of what I was going to do with the guitar. But there was a lot going on at that time in my life. I was working on White Snake. There was yeah. a period where um, I was mixing Passion and Warfare now. And I wasn't quite sure if For the Love of God was actually going to be on the record because oddly enough, a part of me felt like it was overindulgent. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you can imagine, if you can imagine that. So me overindulgent. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so while I was mixing, I didn't get a chance to play a lot. And as you know, if you don't play the guitar for even a, a couple of weeks, you lose your calluses. So there was about a two-week period where I had to I had to mix, and I was mixing nonstop, and I didn't get a chance to play much. But then at the end of the day, I needed to record for the love of God because I was going out on tour with White Snake, and the fasting came about as sort of something that I had studied and picked up earlier in the '80s, early '80s, when I was uh, kind of going through a transition a personal a psychological transition mm -hmm. and i was discovering uh, more metaphysical things i was studying yogis and buddhism and all, all sorts yeah. of different things and one of the things i came across was was fasting there was a book called the miracle of fasting by paul c bragg and uh same brag that makes the amino acids. Oh, wow. I mean, the uh, the uh, yeah, apple cider vinegar. About. Yeah. Okay. So I was fascinated with it, and I started experimenting with it. And I would fast for 10 days, two times a year. I found this very beneficial. So that particular few weeks that I was mixing, I had scheduled a 10-day fast. And the fourth day into it, I had to start recording the solo for the love of God. And, uh, so it wasn't coordinated or you didn't fast for that song. You were just happened to be in the midst of a fast. Well, it was twofold. Basically I knew what my frame of mind would be like through the fast. Cause I've done it many, I've done it many times uh -huh. and there's various things that happen to you psychologically when you're fasting, you know, you're, you're going against your body's natural instinct, first of all. So you have to really find the, the discipline. And when you do that, it's humbling. You know, it's humbling because it's not like you're starving uh, out in, you know, where, where it's not intentional, not intentional starving yeah, right. is not, you know, this has nothing to do with that. It's very different. That's like malnutrition. So you'd have to do it to understand uh, the kind of mental changes that you go through during a fast yeah i've only done 24 hours so i can't imagine yeah yeah the third day is the hardest but then it gets easier it actually gets easier mm -hmm. and then you go through these bouts of uh, intense pain uh for about a minute or two minutes because your body's sort of releasing all these toxins that are buried in in your organs and stuff and when that happens you're it's like you're being poisoned and it's amazing how sick you feel and how you want to die. You actually just, hmm. you, you want to die, but it only lasts like a couple of minutes. 
you know, and yeah. then you're just like really hungry, <laughs> you know, there's like <laughs> a pit in your stomach and then it goes away and you're, and, and you get this euphoria. It's like this for, for a couple of days, there's this sort of like euphoria. You're still hungry. It's hard to explain, but yeah. in this state it's, it is, I would, I would say it's an altered state of, of consciousness in a sense. And uh, I knew this uh, from the past, from doing it so many times. So I knew I had this fast coming up and I timed the performance of For the Love of God after the third day, because there's no way I was going to be able to get through it yeah. on the third day. The, se the, second, the second or third day, no way. Yeah. It's just too hard. It's just, all you want to do is eat and you're weak. Yeah. So by the fourth day, things lighten up. And then the, by the fifth day, those altered states really start to kind of kick in. So it was all a part of it. Another part of it was uh, I, I was fascinated with pyramids at the time, and I was studying the Great Pyramid in Egypt and its dimensions and all the mystique surrounding it and how it's the center of this. And Look at the album cover. You see these little pieces on yeah. there. Yeah, and I built, well, my friend that I was living with at the time built a pyramid, a little pyramid that you can kind of sit in and uh, it was just the outline. It wasn't like solid, but it was uh, based on the dimensions of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And I played under that. Wow. That was one of the things for the love of God also, you know. And these were just fun things to kind of experiment with. That's cool. I mean, the song is so, the chords are so moody. The note selection is so moody. So, so to then infuse that intensity into it yeah uh, every artist every artist has a perfect storm in their career you know yeah do you feel like that is yours uh, i would i would say that's one of them one of the ones that people recognize at least yeah well all the elements came together for me well did you feel it at the time did you or was that a surprise later that the recognition and the success from that i time? i can only only after now decades of having a particular feeling about something and then recording it and then seeing how it turns out. Only now do I know back then I thought it was something special. At the time, I didn't. Yeah. You see? But yeah. what I did know back then was there was an impulse. I had an impulse to do it. The whole thing, the whole thing came to me in a flash. The song, I had the melody, that's all I needed. The rest of it came as... It was there. It, there was nothing. It was. It, it was an inspiration that it came all complete in one piece of low-hanging fruit. Now, back then, it didn't mean anything to me in the eyes of the world because I thought by then my, my career was over. When I was working on Passion and Warfare, I thought, well, that nobody's going to understand this record. Uh. And, no, you know, it's not going to sell, but I have to make it. This is who I am, you know. And uh, so I didn't I didn't think anything about what people might think because I didn't think anybody was ever going to hear it, which was lucky for me, you know. It's the right <laughs> recipe, whether you yeah, do it or not. Yeah, it's a good recipe. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I sometimes uh, encourage musicians to write a piece of music as if no one's ever going to hear it or care about it or anything because then you could do absolutely whatever you want. Too many people work within the confines of the expectations of the world. And that is a recipe for unhappiness because it never works because it doesn't fulfill you as the creative person. The only thing that's going to fulfill you ever completely in life 
is for you to be expressing your uniquely creative potential. That's the only thing. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Good to hear. I also want to direct our listeners to your YouTube channel because you've been very active this past year and earlier on YouTube, but but probably more active during this period. And you have a couple of really cool series under it all where you're getting into more issues like this and as well as Alien Guitar Secrets. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to maybe describe to the listeners as far as what you, what you have going on right now that they can tune into? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, the, the lockdown has been very interesting for me to, uh, you know, reevaluate the kind of work I'm doing and how I'm getting it out there. And for a while now, I've been looking for a format or a platform to be able to kind of bring all this stuff together, all the creative stuff, because otherwise it's like an Instagram here, a Facebook here and, you know, yeah. YouTube and all this. And every artist has a, you know a following that's kind of more the hardcore. What I did was I, I put my people on the lookout for some kind of a platform. And there's quite a few out there now. Some of them are really, really good. And some of them are missing some of the check marks, you know. Uh, but they came back and they said, Patreon is probably what, what would work for you right now. So I'm not a fan of subscription-based things because... I mean, I know that that's the way things are working these days a lot with yeah. subscriptions, but I know that they're a pain in the ass for a lot of people. It's like, oh no, another, I've got my cable, I've got my this, I've got all right, these right. monthly sub- subscriptions. You can't do Adobe or anything now without a subscription. And I, I just, I, I was a little apprehensive, but I thought, well, none of this stuff is going to make me rich. So just charge like $5 a month or something, you know? Yeah. So the that's what I do. And my plan is to just funnel all of this creative stuff through this, at least for now, this Patreon thing. I might, you know, I might move as it gets big because this is where I'm putting all, all the information I know about music theory, about composition, about guitar riffs, about guitar writing, about writing songs, every, everything. There's play, there's really funny stuff on there. I've got different series. There's, uh, tall tales where I tell these funny stories through, that happened throughout my career. There's Videology where I uh, uh, every episode I go through chapter of, of the book. There's uh, Grab Bag <laughs> where I just put together a whole bunch of stuff from the studio and I give it out for free, you know, for people that just kind of sign up and you can make a donation for charity yeah. and stuff. And then there's... Uh, under it all, which is where I discuss a lot of the esoteric topics and alien guitar secrets. And that I'm working on finishing an alien guitar secrets. Now that's, it's a, it's a behemoth. It's on, I just did one that you can check out on the Patreon on uh, miking cabinets. Oh, cool. Because that's something that people have been asking. And I, I learned how to mic cabinets uh, by Eddie Kramer, who used the same technique when he, Mike cabinets for Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. And, you know, so I go through great detail in explaining it's like two hours of, of how to mic cabinets. I mean, through this one sound, I have 17 different mics on cabinets with room mics. I show forensically how to align your tracks so you don't get phase cancellation. I mean, it's a, yeah. And for our listeners, I just typed in Patreon, Steve Vai, and it was the first, uh, result that popped up so you can easily get there and it's yeah so much value five bucks you have a bunch of bullet points of of what it includes so really cool to see yeah thank you so that's the lockdown kind of led me to that uh doing that but um other than that 
I started working on an acoustic record. It was a solo acoustic guitar and vocal, me singing. And uh, it was something I always wanted to do. And I had gotten through most of it. And then I had this shoulder issue. (laughs) I had to get surgery on my shoulder and it it put me out of playing for like two, two months, two or three months. And then when I started to play again, oh man, I was shocked. I couldn't pick, I couldn't strum. I couldn't strum at all. And I was just like, whoa, is this it? Is it, is it over now? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, this is, this is what it's like for it to be over, you know? <laughs> oh man. But then I just started practicing, practicing, you know, playing and it's, it's, it's not entirely back, but I know it's going to be back. Yeah. But, uh, but before that, when I was in the knapsack, I had, I had this uh, sling called a knapsack because the the doctor that did my shoulder surgery his name is dr knapp (laughs) and he does he designed this sling called a knapsack so i wrote this song where i play the guitar with one hand it's called knapsack and it's on uh yeah i saw the video it's online yeah you you talk about your injury too and and then uh conclude with that song and then i think there's a a a freestanding video also of of the song yeah yeah there's the song and yeah one of them is a episode of alien guitar secrets yeah what about touring any any plans yet are you able to do anything there yeah you know it's uh, anything i say now could change sure but uh i i was lucky I, i i didn't plan any tours that i had to move because once the you know pandemic kicked and i didn't have anything on the books for touring and I didn't put anything. But what I did have on the books was uh, a project that I've been wanting to do for years and years, and that's record a whole slew of orchestra music that I have. And uh, we planned that. It's going to take a month, and I was using two orchestras in Europe and had to cancel it and move it. Then I had to cancel it and move it again, and now we're scheduled to do that in uh, 22 May. So okay. what, I'm, what I'm looking for, at, what I'm looking at now I'm starting to feel really eager to get on tour. Uh, January 22 kicks off with a Vi Academy camp, Vi camp, and that'll be very nice. Is that virtual or is that in person? No, it's all in person. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, and then um, at the end of January, I'm supposed to kick off an American tour, and I should be touring for about a year and a half. Oh wow. Yeah, and then I'll be, and then I, and that's it for me for big giant tours. Oh, really? But smaller so. tours. But yeah, that's an enormous yeah, tour. Small okay, tour. that's big. Well, hey, before we go, I guess I guess we should uh, talk about guitar strings real quick. <laughs> okay. Obviously, you uh, play Ernie Ball. Have you been yeah. consistent in the the gauge you play through the decades? Yeah, yeah. Um, I start. At, I'm usually a nine to forty two guy, but uh, once I get on tour. Uh, after a couple of months, I might up, you know, I, I up the low strings after a month, a little bit sometimes. Hmm. And then if I'm feeling really randy, I, uh, I switched to tens. I haven't done that. I didn't, I didn't do that on the last tour. Okay. So you're super slinky guy mainly. Yeah. But it's the paradigm. Oh, okay. Those strings are crazy. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I was so surprised because, you know, after being in the business for 41 years, there's all sorts of claims that are made yeah. by companies, you know, and sometimes they're fascinating and sometimes they're just talking points. These don't break. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you what, man, they don't break. Super tough. They just don't break. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised. 
And then I did a little research. One of the alien guitar secrets that I was planning on working on for the Patreon was a complete and utter uh, review of how to string a guitar. Oh, cool. You know, like really how to string it and, um, and the different strings and what different strings are. But I went through every single Ernie Ball string. <laughs> Do you, is that already released? No, I've got it's oh. on my computer still. You know, I, oh, th- I was I, like I was that. speaking to Sterling. I told Sterling about it. Yeah, we were talking about it, and he said, "Well, I'll, I'll turn you on to these guys at the company that'll aid you because there's a couple of points that I I still wanted to review, but it's comprehensive. It's completely comprehensive." Oh, I can't wait to see it. Well, I have to finish it now. So yeah, it's, it's someday. <laughs> and yeah, well, I have to finish a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot going <laughs> you know, on. So, yeah. Well, Steve Vai, I, I so appreciate the history, the insight, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thanks for having it. And, you know, the whole Ernie Ball uh, history and the family and the just my relationship with the company, it's really nice. It's one of these things in the business that, it's just a perk, you know, and not just the fact that I have a personal relationship, you know, it, that's special, yeah. you know, and it's really nice. Uh, what, but what's really great is the fact that this company, uh, as, as creative as Sterling is, he's, and as aware he is of being able to get into all sorts of different things, he's never compromised the quality and the evolution of the strings and and the company basically all aspects of it the, the company is constantly has always beautifully improved and expanded that that in ways that has been so beneficial to us musicians so that's really nice thank you that's that's great <laughs> so to thank hear. you yeah thank you all right steve i thanks for tuning in to striking a chord and ernie ball podcast Big thanks to Steve Vai for doing this interview. Such an amazing career, and I can't wait to see what's coming next. If you'd like to contact us, please email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. There's been times through my career that I've had a feeling about something and that feeling was always an organic creative sense of enthusiasm which is different than the feeling of hey this is a good idea and everybody's going to love it and it's going to be a big hit right see that's a fantasy okay and a fantasy may or may not happen nine times maybe 99 times out of 100 they don't happen but they're egoic fantasies And the reason why people are so disappointed so many times is because they they believe that they were cheated somehow because their fantasy didn't come true. When in reality, their true fantasy is happening and they don't realize it. Mm. But is that sort of how people can be most present? And there's certain activities for certain people that are authentic that are going to allow them to be present? It's impossible to not partake in an authentic procedure if you're present. Yeah. If you're present, everything you do is perfect for you in that moment. But people don't know what present means to be present. They, it's they, hard, yeah. It's hard because to be present, you have to be in the, in the now with your attention, completely in the now without, without past or future in your head. 
Right. When you're present, you're in touch with your creative instincts. That's the only place that you can find your true creative, unique, your uniquely creative impulses. They're there. They are absolutely there. You don't even have to believe me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what if you even believe me or not. The only way it matters is you'll be depriving yourself of them if you don't. <laughs> You know, yeah. but they're there. They're there, yeah. and becoming present uh, is is the highway. It's the opening that's necessary for these things to come out into the world. They want to come out through you. 